Welcome everybody, this is episode 36 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast on African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alagi. And today it is my pleasure to introduce our colleague and friend, Professor Molimu Deongoniani at Michigan State University. He teaches Swahili and linguistics. His main research and teaching interests are in language description, uh, the morphosyntax of Bantu languages, and particularly how morphological structure is related to phrasal structure. He is the author of A Grammar of Chingoni, in East African language and has published many, many scholarly articles in uh, the Linguistic Review, uh, the Journal of the Institute of Kiswahili Research, uh, Lingua, and other journals. Uh, he is the pillar of our uh, African language uh, program here at Michigan State and has a PhD from uh, University of California, Los Angeles, but also spent time teaching uh, at the high school level uh, and also at uh, the university level in Tanzania, particularly at the University of uh, Dar es Salaam. Welcome, Dale. Thank you very much. Okay, the, the first question that uh, we thought we would ask uh, has to do with your fieldwork on documenting endangered African languages, particularly the language of Kikisi, which you've researched extensively in southwestern Tanzania. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Thank you. Um, I spent several months uh, in 2006 and 2007 um, working among the uh, Kikisi speakers who live on a few villages that are uh, on the shores, on the northeastern shores of Lake Tanga, Lake Nyasa, excuse me, or as it is also known as Lake Malawi. Um, it is a small language that is estimated to be spoken by about 10,000 speakers only in a few villages. Um, it's a language that uh, in terms of the number of speakers could be considered uh, endangered, and that is a language that seems to be losing the number of speakers um, slowly. Uh, it's very difficult to estimate how bad the situation is because it also depends on a number of other factors. Some scholars consider 10,000 to be already endangered, and some would say not quite because there are several factors that might be considered in order to determine whether a language is endangered or not. Uh, and my experience was that compared to other languages in the southern area, it's probably not in a very critical, endangered state yet. But it is going there due to a lot of pressure from uh, the big language, Swahili, which is spoken everywhere, as well as neighboring languages, which are Kinyakusa in the north, uh, Kipangwa in the east, and Kimanda in the south. Now, there, there are over 2,100 living African languages, uh, according to uh, linguists. Uh, of course, the, the, the number seems to change right, all the time. Right, um, right. African languages represent almost a third of all the languages Correct. spoken on our planet. Correct. Uh, but you've pointed out uh, when you visited my course and gave a wonderful lecture on this topic that the median number of uh, speakers of an African language is only about 25,000. Correct. So how do you determine then what the factors of linguistic vitality are for African languages? There are several things, but one of the best indicators is looking at the young population, the children. Are they acquiring the language or not? 
if they are acquiring the language, then you can set, say that actually it is very safe. It's quite safe. Uh, but if you find that the younger population is not learning the language, is not acquiring the language, that's one indicator that the language is, is, is in trouble. But another, another indicator of uh, endangerment is when you have uh, the number of speakers also uh, small or declining. Uh, that is another feature. Uh, and this may be compounded by a number of other factors. For example, if a language is not written, there is no literacy, there is no writing system for the language, and you find that the younger people are not acquiring it, then you can see it's in a bigger danger than a language that has a writing system, or at least it is documented in a way. Okay. So several such features would tell you a language is either endangered or is still um, quite vital. Well, thinking about the, the younger generations and, and uh, younger people speaking such languages, what then might be some of the outcomes or the tools of the research of you and your colleagues to help these endangered languages survive? I was thinking, for instance, of the role of popular culture, which we might talk about later, but also the I'm aware of this wonderful project at the University of Dar es Salaam, LOT, or the Languages of Tanzania Project, which right. is, um, has a remarkably prolific output in recent years of these um, very uh, readable dictionaries or lexical lists of a, a whole range of languages. I was looking at some recently that came into uh, Michigan State University libraries and the titles Kimeru. Uh, just today I saw... Uh, Sisumbwa and many others. Uh, obviously these sorts of uh, tools would be of value to learners, dictionaries, popular culture. How are we going to go about saving these languages? Um, many people agree that sometimes the question of saving these endangered languages may be very, very difficult and in some cases may be uh, qu quite impossible to, to save. But what we are hoping to do in the list is to try to document them and have some uh, material that reflects the existence of this culture and try to preserve some of the wealth, some of the inherited wisdom uh, that is inherent in those languages. So um, along those lines, then you find what I am doing and my colleagues at the University of Dar es Salaam and other places. Uh, one of the very first things that we need to do is document them just go and uh, study those languages and write dictionaries, write grammars, collect some texts such as folk tales and different kinds of folklore, uh, collect songs, poetry, and whatever, to try to preserve the, the, these kinds of material. That, and that's the best tool that we have right now. Uh, beyond that, then a lot of people do a lot more in terms of uh, using the modern electronic media uh, to preserve and try to uh, disseminate it to different uh, um, audiences. Now, when you arrived in the Kikisi-speaking region of Tanzania and you're on the shores of uh, Lake Nyasa and you had this wonderful project yeah. uh, to work on, what did the local folks have to say? What, were the, what was their view of, of you outside researcher? Kikisi is not your first language, right? No, uh, coming in, trying to do these, these wonderful, noble things. Yes, yes. And, and um, um, Kikisi is not my first language. It's not my language. Yeah, I did not speak Kikisi before I went in. 
and uh, it was also interesting when they found that I was um, I was working in the United States and I had gone for for this particular research. I found them to be very very enthusiastic, and we many other researchers uh, testified to this that whenever you go to study a language that has not been documented. It's very, very rewarding, not only for the researcher, but also for the people who are working with the researcher because um, they, they get to also reflect on their language and they appreciate their language b even more than before, hmm. uh, before they saw someone working on this. Because if you work with a linguist uh, much more closely, then it's, it gets really, really boring because we ask lots of small questions repeatedly and that, that doesn't help. But you see... Many Kikisi speakers, especially the older ones, would con constantly tell me that, look at our neighbors, the Kinyakusa speakers, they have Bible, they have religious materials written in their language. Look at the Wapangwa of the mountains on the east, they have materials written in their language. Look at the south, they also have materials written in their language. It's only us who don't have anything written uh, uh, in our language. And so they're very, very enthusiastic. And so this is the other thing that, that we have, uh, to go back also to your question, as a tool of trying to preserve these languages is to collect these materials and try to make them accessible to the population. So I have this other project that I'm working once I get done with the first phase of my project is to, I have collected some folk tales and some songs which I plan to, to publish in small booklets that may be available to, uh, to children in schools and uh, if they have uh, village libraries or things like that, that they may be able to read. But then, of course, you know, they don't have a writing system. And even though this language, this language is uh, uh, closely related to Swahili, you do find a few sounds that are not found in Swahili, and therefore you have to negotiate on how they are going to be represented in that language. So I'm working with Kiki uh, speakers who have attempted to write every now and then in their own letters, uh, some other writings not really widely circulated that may be helpful uh, uh, for, for them too. This question of oral narratives in African languages reminds me that Michigan State University this year was, was able to secure a very generous grant on African languages and it's going to focus on oral narratives including Kishwahili. Right. Um, and I was on the shore of Lake Malawi, Lake Nyasa, earlier this year at Mangochi, and I was struck by the, the not just the multiplicity, but the coexistence of languages such as Yao and others mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. as I was watching the fishing boats yeah. uh, wander by. But um, this question of coexistence of languages or the mutual intelligibility or mutual nourishment is interesting because I've heard it said that Kishwahili itself, vis-a-vis -vis the smaller or endangered languages, can in some ways perhaps be seen as a problem in, in the sense that its own success as an indigenous language could contribute perhaps to the choking of these smaller languages. And I wonder if so, what could be done? Of course, Tanzania was a, was a, a pathbreaker in this whole question of getting away from the domination of European colonial languages and, and, and publishing and uh, teaching, not just at the elementary or primary level, but also at university level, and publishing. We have you know, many successful uh, Kishwahili publishing houses, such as that of my friend Walter Bagoya and his Mkuki Nyota, uh, which we distribute here at MSU Press. Uh, 
What, what about this question, Dale, of the relationship of Kishwahili on the one hand and the smaller languages on the other? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, yeah, Kiswahili has been very, very successful in uh, East and uh, some parts of Central Africa. But apart from that, I must say that for a long time in Tanzania after independence, uh, there was a uh, very uh, healthy um, promotion of Kiswahili, but at the same time, uh, to a great extent, the local languages were ignored. And that has caused a problem. Uh, I find this whenever you have one big language and people tend to feel like that's the only thing that matters in the world. Uh, you see, we have to remember that multilingualism, bilingualism is actually much more common in human societies. We learn several languages and we're able to speak one language or the other as we go from one community to, a, to another. And so it shouldn't have been a problem. These languages should have been promoted uh, parallel to the developments that we were um, giving to, to Swahili. So I, I do agree there is to a certain extent a problem for the uh, local languages. I come from southern Tanzania also, not the Kise-speaking area, but I speak another language that is known as Kinde and Deule. Uh, probably 150 to 200,000 speakers. Um, but whenever I go back these days, I find that my nieces and nephews prefer to speak Swahili and not to speak Kindendeule. And they, was, they are always surprised that I can speak uh, 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 Kindendeule fluently and, and I, don't have, I don't have any problems. Uh, although they tend to feel like I speak older Kindendeule because I have left home many, many years and so I, my language is still uh, the older 60s language rather than what has been he very heavily influenced by Swahili now. So, so I see these two problems, that there is a lot of emphasis on Swahili. The Swahili is considered the cosmopolitan language and that everyone finds to be very fashionable and it is very useful uh, wherever you go uh, in the country. But at the same time, we find that the local languages in include a lot more Swahili, more than it would be necessary. This is beyond just code switching, and it goes way to a point where you find children not even acquiring the local languages or preferring not to speak local languages than, than, than we saw before. And what are some of the spaces in everyday lives in which uh, Swahili is penetrating and, and uh, taking over? I imagine schools right, would be right. a very important one, but what other spaces yeah, would yeah, you highlight? So um, um, some, some linguists uh, had described the situation in places like Tanzania, like as, as triglossia, that's when, where you have a, a system of three languages at least. One vernacular language that is local, and the family would usually communicate using that language. So in my case, it would be Kindendeule at home. Uh, uh, and we speak it with uh, friends and relatives. Then there is a national language, uh, Kiswahili, which is the language you would use at school, at church, at the mosque, um, and uh, in public rallies. In public and administration, generally, Swahili would be used. And then we are introduced in school to English, which is the language of higher education, uh, international communication, and so on. But now you begin to see that uh, progressively, even communication at home, even conversations at home, are taking place in Swahili rather than in Kindendeole. And that seems to be the case in many other parts of the country. So you see the domains like uh, uh, everyday conversation in the house uh, takes place in, in Swahili. It's not just professional or uh, business. It's also 
things that are considered originally as domains of the local languages are now um, domains of Swahili. And uh, that's typically a case where you find what we know as uh, language shift. It's not there yet, but we can see slowly going in that direction. Is there a role here perhaps for the mass media and popular culture? Um, if we think about radio or even cell phones or Twitter or TV newspapers, uh, are there ways in which the smaller endangered languages could regain vitality by being replenished through, through new media or alternative media or even maybe state or commercial run media? Or, or, or is this a question of the bigger languages having having almost a monopoly of the discourses here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it seems to be like that the bigger languages have a monopoly. But, um, but the other thing that I think is done now is uh, with work like uh, by the Languages of Tanzania Project and uh, many other developments have led to people having mo more pride in their local languages. That was not there before. So now you can see, even in the new media, you can see a lot more use of these other languages, even when they don't have a, a standardized writing system. You can even see uh, uh, billboards or writings on buses and vehicles that are in some local languages. Uh, still, even among the local languages, you find some that are much more, uh, uh, much more vital with more speakers, like Kisukuma in, uh, in northern Tanzania. Uh, compared to Kindendeule or Kikis in, in the south. And so you'll find still those that have more speakers would have to be, would, would, would get more uh, uh, visibility in terms of using um, media and sometimes even you can see, uh, you can find them in radio and sometimes even a few publications. So there is a role for the new media definitely to try to, um, to keep these languages and provide a little bit of uh, a forum for them to be used. Isn't it also possible, however, that new media will continue to marginalize, uh, to, to maybe exacerbate the uh, difficult position of these endangered African languages? I don't know if it's going to be really worse or whatever, but, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of English and Swahili being so dominant in those realms. Yeah, but I must also say that even the position of English versus, versus Swahili is also not that uh, Swahili and English have an equal status. Like I said in the uh, trifocal status, uh, it's the second rank mm -hmm. for Swahili. And even then that we find these days there is more push, uh, more demand from parents to have their kids speak more English than, than, than before. And you find parents sending their children to English medium schools rather than send them to public schools that continue to use uh, Swahili. And so uh, kids start learning English earlier now, like first grade they start learning English and they, and they go on. Um, so this kind of obscures the general problems that exist in the, in the education system, which is they are not well funded the teachers are not very well trained. So the private owners of schools are able to, you know, uh, come up with money to pay the teachers uh, and to provide uh, better facilities, and so the students would learn better. Uh, so English has acquired this uh, very high status. It was there, but now I think it's, it's even worse because it's uh, much more of a marker of one's education. If you speak English, then you have had good education. If you don't speak English, 
um, even if you know stuff very well, you don't speak English, then your education is a little bit questionable. Um, so, so, I, so I don't think that the new media is def certainly going to uh, have such a huge negative impact uh, more than what has happened uh, up to now. That's my feeling. I suppose, I mean, I mean we've, the sociolinguistic aspects here are important and as we mentioned earlier, government policy, language policy yes, yes, yes. Uh, has been uh, experimented with in Tanzania and uh, some definite breakthroughs. I wonder if this uh, increasing prominence of English in the media is starting to impact on teaching in in Kishwahili. My colleague Joe Lauer will always maintain this idea that until a African countries can can really teach at a university level in their own language, as for instance the Japanese or the Chinese or the Italians or the Russians or the Norwegians, then they're going to have this these problems of brain drain. And how how is the government and the, how are the universities grappling with this question of language policy? This has been a very difficult uh, problem in the country for, for a long time. Um, many experts at the universities uh, feel that that should have been the direction where we should be going, uh, that eventually we should have uh, Swahili as the medium of instruction even at the university. And in fact, earlier after independence, that was the um, policy that was written that eventually we would have Swahili as the medium of instruction, uh, even at, at university level. But now we seem to have gone back uh, uh, a lot more than we could have imagined uh, 25 years ago. Uh, and that seems to be a problem. I think many, many of my colleagues at the University of Dar es Salaam and other places would agree that we, we have a serious problem. I, I'll tell you my experiences when I was teaching in secondary schools, and that was in the, in the 80s. Um, a, a geography teacher or a chemistry teacher would teach in Swahili because the students were not proficient in English. And right now, it seems to me even most of the teachers are not proficient in English. So they teach in Swahili. And then, well, they have to give the students written notes in English because that's the language in which they'll be examined. Uh. So this is a, an education that is very much designed and geared towards exams rather than acquisition of knowledge, rather than developing curiosity and inquisitiveness among, among the students. And so in the end, you find that the students have to memorize what is provided by the teachers. They have to memorize even when they don't understand. Um, so and the better you memorize and are able to reproduce on a cue to certain questions, um, then the better grade you will get. So in the end, uh, at the end, Students write the exams in English and try to reproduce whatever they are able to, to, to reproduce. So they do not really learn very well. Um, so there are several different options we could take from there. I mean, you could decide, uh, so no more Swahili in schools completely. Let's go English. Well, there are several different kinds of problems that we might face. Or we might want to say uh, no more English at all. Let's just go all the way Swahili. And there, are op there is opposition on both sides of, of this argument. My personal feeling is that we should not make this a polar question, that it shouldn't be either Swahili or English. 
we should teach both languages, in fact, encourage even the local languages to be taught very well right from elementary school and not as it is happening now. And once we do that, then there is going to be no problem of what language do we choose. It will, in my opinion, become very automatic. Well, we have time for one more question. Peter, I hope it's okay if I ask it. Um, it's it's a kind of a, the so what question in yeah. terms of enda endangered African languages and, yeah. the, and the work you've been doing to document uh, Kikisi and, and others. Yeah. Uh, why is this an important project? Why should we care about documenting languages that only a few thousand people speak in remote parts of the African continent? Well, if you think about it, you, you, might, you might also find that language is not just a tool of communication. It is also uh, a library. Language tends to, um, to be a depository of all kinds of knowledge. And for societies that have existed in different environments in this world, language reflects their survival in that particular environment. And a good example of that is how traditional societies uh, may have used things like herbs. And so you find uh, a lot of other linguists who are doing endangered languages study ethnobotany, mm. especially, particularly for the benefits that we may get from, uh, from plants and things like that. And so one big reason why we should work to at least preserve some material about these languages is that the languages are some form of a library. If a language dies, that library also dies. Imagine you have an old person in a community who knows a lot. It's like the encyclopedia of the community. Uh, if that knowledge from that person doesn't go to another person, that is a library, that's an encyclopedia that has disappeared. So we want to preserve that. But there is also another reason, and that is for linguists uh, like me. We seem to be grappling every day with the question of what is the nature of language? How is language structured? And we have come up with different sorts of ideas of what things we find common in all languages and so on. But every now and then we are challenged by data from a language that had not been studied before. And so when it comes up, we get new knowledge, we get new ideas, new theories about language. So if a language disappears, again, some sort of data disappears with that language. A third reason is the fact that we want to preserve diversity in, in human culture. Uh, taking our hint from biology, the more diverse we are, the, the better. Mm. And so even in UNESCO, they have uh, um, declared this as a um, general uh, herit heritage for, for, human, for humans to have a diverse culture and have uh, diverse languages. So at least for these three reasons, uh, I'm very much interested in trying to work to... Um, document uh, or preserve when it's possible to preserve languages. And you'll be returning to Eastern Africa this summer leading a Swahili group project abroad, right? So if there yes. are listeners out there who are interested yes. in uh, going to Tanzania right. and improving their Swahili language Absolutely. skills, they can come to you, right? Absolutely. You want to uh, share with us uh, a little information about that? Yes. Um, Michigan State University has been hosting the uh, Fulbright Hayes Group Projects Abroad, which takes students to Tanzania for uh, uh, intensive Swahili program. It's a soft immersion. Uh, it's not completely something that we do for them for six months. It's two months where 
we help them uh, stay at an institution in Tanzania and they also stay with families to try to speak the language, to learn the language much more intensively. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very rewarding program. I've been with the program for something like four or five years now. And we have found that every time we go with the students, they learn a lot uh, more than they would learn here in two years. They completely learn uh, lots of things. So that's one project we, we are working for right now. But we are also trying to have another project for MSU. The group projects abroad is a national program, so we invite everyone from anywhere in the United States. It's a fully funded program by the Department of Education, but we're also trying to develop a new program for Michigan State students uh, in collaboration with the University of Michigan, and we invite anyone from any other institution who might want to participate in our program. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for coming on the program, Thank Dale. You. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Yeah,